Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. We have a great panel, as you know. That's why you're all here tonight. So very pleased to introduce our moderator and panelist. We've done many events here at the Time Center, and I think this is the first time we've had a New York Times employee on stage with us. So we're very pleased that the theater critic Charles Isherwood is here to moderate. So please welcome Charles. Um, and you're about to meet again a man who had his film debut in, um, in Baby Doll. We're going to see some of that later. If this was last week, I would have introduced him as a 93-year-old Eli Wallach, but his birthday was on Monday, so he's 94. And um, here he is. show the first film, my first film. Well, theater audiences are much more lively than film audiences, I have to say. Uh, The the next actress um, who is so magnificent in this movie, The Lost for Teardrop Diamond, and she now joins this gallery of of actresses who have given great performances uh, doing Tennessee Williams' words and parts, um, is Bryce, she's not 94, but she is Bryce Dallas Howard, so please welcome her. And, of course, the great star of screen and stage and um, an author. She wrote a wonderful memoir a few years ago. She's, um, of course, very involved with the Actors Studio. I know there are many members of the Actors Studio here tonight. And she's also great in The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond, um, Ellen Burstyn. Next panelist actually started career as an actress. Um, she, direct, she directed a short film um, based on a Eudora Welty short story. And just we just thought today or realized today that she's actually the first woman ever to direct a feature film based on a t- Tennessee Williams uh, play or screenplay. And she did a great job with it. Jody Markell. And last but not least, we have a magnificent um, actress who just did a show within the last year called The Lighter Side. Of, I think we're getting the title right, but The Lighter Side of Tennessee Williams. Uh, we're so pleased that she's with us tonight. tonight. Please welcome Elaine Stritch. Where is she? Right there. 
actress I know that can get a laugh by sitting down. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. If I may have your attention, panel. Um, I think we just saw up there an amazing example of how Tennessee Williams' artistry has been preserved on film. In my opinion, those are actually two of the greatest performances that have ever been captured on film, Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando. But in preparing for this panel, I realized that I think Tennessee Williams has actually been better served than probably any other playwright on film, certainly any other American playwright. There are more than a dozen movies made from his, uh, his works, and a lot of them were made you know, in the moment, and there's actually a fairly amount of fidelity. Um, obviously, Hollywood always takes you know, a few liberties. And there's a wonderful quote he once said that uh, he was encouraging people to uh, go see the movies made based on his plays, but to leave before the last five minutes. <laughs> um, and that's obviously because uh, very often the endings tended to be softened in accordance with the Hollywood idea that you need to leave a little uplift at the end. Um, Glass Menagerie, I think, uh, which isn't seen very much, but the ending of that suggests that there's going to be another gentleman caller coming to save the day for, uh, <laughs> for Laura. Um, and in Streetcar, of course, uh, there's also a similarly slightly upbeat ending, which suggests that uh, Stella is not going to go back and uh, you know, live happily ever after necessarily with Stanley. Um, anyway, what I think is wonderful is that we now have a new movie based on you know, Tennessee so Williams' original screenplay. And uh, to begin, we're going to begin with that. And uh, before I introduce the first clip, I'd like Jody maybe to talk about how she came, you know, to be, I assume, possessed to make this movie. And how did you choose it from, uh, you know, one of several screenplays that have not yet been filmed? Well, when I was a girl, I, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. When I played Laura in The Glass Menagerie when I was 15, and I was hooked. And... By the time I was 17, I read everything I could find by Williams. He, he really spoke to me because he had such an affinity for those sensitive souls, those broken characters, the people who feel maybe a bit out of place in a conventional society. And as a young teenager with artistic interests, I related to that, and I think he has a voice that speaks to many different generations because of that. And he, he, um, his work is poetry, and I'm very interested in the visual, the visual world of Tennessee Williams as well. So when I read The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond, it was the first screenplay that I had ever read of his. And I just sparked to Fisher Willow, who was trying, you know, a young woman trying to find her voice and trying to find something genuine in a harsh world. And I thought, well, I can't believe this hasn't been made. And having grown up in the South, I had spent a number of years after acting school seeing productions of William's work that seemed very dated and dusty. Not the great films, but a lot of the theatrical productions that I saw, they seemed have a lot of layers on top of it and that seemed to maybe alienate audiences and push them away and I wanted to kind of knock all that off and try to get back to his original voice and yes, that's and what made me want to make the film 
Okay, well, let's take a look at the first scene. Um, I'll set it up. It's, um, it's the scene where Bryce's character, Fisher Willow, uh, she's sort of a reluctant debutante, uh, a rebellious debutante, you might even say, and she's entering a, um, you know, a party that is very staid and traditional, and she sort of immediately turns the mood and sort of it establishes exactly who she is in this environment. Um, so uh, without further ado, let's take a look at a scene from The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond. The receiving line's breaking up. What do I do? Wait till the lady extends her hand, then just take it and smile. What, Caroline? Why, you've got that band that played so divinely at Jesse Strutt's. I bet when I walk in, they'll strike up my favorite number. <laughs> Which is what? One moment. Let me appear. Facts! <laughs> Facts, my song! She tips the governor's grandson. Shall I inquire? I dare you. Accept it. Mr. Dobar, I've been released for the waltz. I'm sorry, Miss... Caroline. But I'm not employed by you. Your instincts are infallible. 
And you're the cynosure of all female eyes at the party. <laughs> Let's, uh... Yes? Cool off on the terrace? Whatever you say. I'm curious, what is it about the character that, you know, attracted you to her, made you think that she's, you know, a character that speaks to today? And also maybe where you think she fits in the Williams canon. I mean, there's so many amazing female uh, characters in Williams' work. And there are maybe some affinities that you found. Um, well, I mean, the first thing that obviously really struck me about this project was that it, it was um, an unproduced Tennessee Williams screenplay, which... Um, it's just, I mean, it's an extraordinary opportunity to, to get to investigate any, any Williams heroine, let alone a heroine that hasn't been originated yet. So that was, <laughs> I was kind of crazed that that, that was even available. Um, and then just, I would say specifically, what, um, what I really appreciate about this character, and I think a lot of Williams heroines um, um, also have this, this trait, is, share this trait, is that she's entirely unapologetic. And um, and that's not something I, I, I don't think we see characters like that that often. You know, a woman who's totally unapologetic, um, and at some points almost to like a hedonistic degree. And so that that to me was really exciting to kind of explore that. And um, and the way in which I I, I also um, something that kind of grounded the character for me was, was studying actually the, the role of, um, of Blanche Dubois and imagining, okay, this is her p- perhaps 15 years earlier when she still had a chance, you know, when she might not have gone over the edge. And I feel like this film really captures this moment in this young woman's life where she could remain, um, she could become entirely deluded or she could find a way to, to protect her delicate spirit and survive in this, you know, provincial southern society. And, and it's kind of this tipping point. Um, so those were all kind of really amazing things to, to, get, to, um, to get to experience, obviously, with, you know, Jody's unbelievable guidance. Well, she's really not the only character in the film. What's really, she has a relationship with this young man with whom mm. she falls in love. But really, for me, the most moving relationship might almost have been the relationship between your character and Ellen's character, Aunt Addie, uh, you share two scenes that are absolutely, um, you know, riveting. Um, before we look at the scene, the, the first scene between the, your two characters, I thought maybe Ellen could tell us, you know, where you were coming from when you were creating her. It's a very small, but it's a very potent role, and uh, I'd like you to maybe address what that potency involves. Well, first of all, she has, um, she's had a stroke, so there's a physicality that I needed to explore. And I, I went to a hospital and um, observed a, a woman who was in the same condition. And, uh, and it was quite uh, startling and frightening. Um, and I would rather that you look at the clip before I say anything <laughs> That's more fine. about it. Let's go ahead and take a look at the clip, and uh, she gives a lot of the background of the character. That you, well, you'll see. So, uh, part two of the loss of the teardrop diamond, which I love to just keep saying because it's such a beautiful title. Mm-hmm. Williams created the best title. 
Is it, and also, um, Fisher's at the party, and she goes upstairs, and she hasn't seen Miss Addie in many, many years. Thank you for coming in. I know how unpleasant it is to enter this chamber of horrors. Why do you call it a chamber of horrors, Miss Addie? Because that's just what it is. Would you please close this door? Would you please lock it? I want to have a completely private talk with you. Now come over here so I don't have to raise my voice. I have the use of my voice. My heart and my lungs and the other internal organs that one can't control remorselessly continue. As for the rest of me, it's stone dead, Fisher. Are you in a hurry to get back down to the party? No. We met only once before. Your Aunt Cornelia and I had had a brief but memorable encounter in Hong Kong. Two years ago when I was here for a short visit, she brought you along when she paid me a call at my... Of course, I remember. You had a little... <laughs> yeah, cottage on Sand Island. She said you wrote travel books. My base was Hong Kong. There's much tolerance there. And here? I would say none at all. Yes. So I elected to spend my life in the tolerant orient. But things that one elects are often circumvented by others. I think you know about that. Yes. I know about that. I had a stroke in China. It was a slight one. But I knew, I was told, there'd be others. And unfortunately... Oh, you're being called back downstairs. I have to get on with this quickly. I had to stay in China because I'd become addicted to something that I could only have there. What to? To what, Miss Eddie? To a drug that made it bearable for me to live when living became unbearable for me. You see, I'd quit my travels and settle down in one place. And needing something so badly to make life bearable, I found something. The poppy. The smoke of the burning poppy. And then, early last summer, the terrible thing that was coming, that the drug made me forget was coming, happened. 
I have the strokes that cause my present condition. My brother Jack was told and I was brought back here by force. As I am kept living in agony by force. And then I was withdrawn from my my comfort. Miss Eddie, why are you telling me this story? Because I remembered the last time I saw you, the impression you made on me. There was something hard and honest about you. I thought you could do something for me. The only thing that can be done for me now. You see, I see nobody but people that can imagine. You can. You can imagine, Fisher. That's really a classically beautiful Williams monologue. Um, it's really a treasure to have it preserved on film. I'm wondering if you find it, it's an idiom that we don't really speak in anymore. Did you find it difficult to find your way into the poetic language that you wrote with, have you, you know, not working with it so much? Not for a second. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I just, I love the, the lyricism you know, mm. of him. It's... It's so, oh, I mean, mine's like I was withdrawn from my comfort. <laughs> you know, it's such wonderful writing. Um, so I, I was happy and thrilled to be saying those words. Well, and, and for the first time, on, you know, you're creating a character in a Williams product. It's pretty amazing. Bryce, did you also find it was fairly easy to slip into that, that lyric language? Well, it is, I mean, it's such, like Ellen was saying, it's such beautiful writing. So, you know, it's, um, you don't have to do much, you know, to, mm-hmm. to um, there's nothing that needs to be enhanced at all. The character really comes out of the language. Yeah, and Jody was just so, so knows this world and these characters and has lived with this piece for over 10 years. And so... Um, in the moments when I, I personally was floundering and felt like I couldn't rise to the occasion of, of what the language was offering, you know, Jody was right there, and then being in a scene with someone like Ellen, you know, incredible. It, the language affects you, mm-hmm. you know, it, it carries you. Well, after this, I think we might want to look to the lighter side of William. So that's so there was a fairly heavy scene there, and uh, I think he's often stereotyped actually as being a very gothic, southern gothic writer who essentially wrote these dark tragedies. Um, obviously, there's a lot of tragedy in Streetcar and Glass Menagerie, but um, there's great humor in most uh, of his writing, if not all of it. In fact, there's humor in those scenes we just saw. And Eli, of course, starred in what I think, in my view, is probably the funniest, most purely funny movie ever made from a Williams play, which is uh, Baby Doll. Um, this was based on two separate, this is sort of an original almost, it was based on two separate one-act plays that, as I understand it, uh, Elia Kazan was looking for another Williams property, and there, were, there was nothing full-length that he wanted to do, so Tennessee gave him a pile of plays, and he chose these two. And um, we're going to take a look at a clip that uh, I should probably set up, because if you haven't seen it recently, it's 
I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory what's going on in this scene, but um, <laughs> your character, Vaccaro, is uh, in, it's putting the initial moves on Baby Doll, who is a young woman who is married to uh, a man named Archie, whom she has yet to sleep with. And uh, Vaccaro believes that uh, Archie has burned down your cotton gin, which, in fact, he has. And uh, as, a, as, a, <laughs> as a form of revenge... Uh, begins this incredible seduction of, uh, of Baby Doll uh, by Vaccaro, and uh, it's really one of the funniest, <coughs> funniest and still quite shocking scenes that I think has ever been uh, put on film in a romantic comedy. <laughs> so uh, let's take a look at Baby Doll. It's hard to find a place to sit inside or you'll pay as you go plant furniture company lost patience. Just sit in comfort. It's hard I mean. to sit in comfort when the ideal pay as you go plant people lose their mm. patience and your gin burns down. Would you move your leg? But it's cool here. Comfortable to sit in. What's this here? That's my charm bracelet. My daddy gave it to me. Them's the Ten Commandments. And these here? My birthdays. How many charming birthdays have you had? <laughs> as many as there are charms on a bracelet. Man, if I... Count them. Hmm. That's all. I'll be 20 tomorrow. Tomorrow is election day and my birthday and the day that Mr. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected for his first term. It's a great day for the country for both reasons. Oh, he was a man to respect. Well, you're a lady to respect, Mrs. Meehan. Me? No. I never got past the fourth grade. Why'd you quit? Well, I had a great deal of trouble with long division. Yeah? The teacher would send me up to the blackboard to work on a problem in long division. And I would go up to the blackboard and lean my head against it and just cry and cry and cry. Would you move your leg? You want to move my leg? Yeah, otherwise I can't get out. Okay. Well, I would just cry and cry and cry. Well, finally I left school and, oh, girl without education is a girl without education. Mr. Carol? Just picking up a few pecan nuts. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me, Mr. Vaccaro, but I wouldn't dream of eating a nut which a man had cracked in his mouth. You've got many refinements. Thank you. Eli, that's as funny and as lewd as I think it was the day it was filmed. You know, you know the one line that came after that is he says, well, you got through long division. 
Now, when you were filming it, uh, were you fully aware of how transgressive it was for the time? And was there a, a lot of delicate negotiation about where the camera was to be placed and how the lines were to be said? Well, t- Kazan said to uh, Carol Baker, who played Baby Doll, he said, uh, go back there and prepare. She said, all right. She went back there, and it was getting dark in the evening in, in Mississippi. And Kazan said, what's happening with her back there? I said, I don't know. Go get her. So he went back there, and she was there. And he said, what is it, honey? And she said, it's, I don't know how to prepare. <laughs> so, so, so Kazan said, give me a hand, honey. And he took her all the way to where I was sitting. And he sat her down. And, she's, and, and, and he, she started to cry. She was crying because she couldn't figure what to do with herself. And there I was, who was about to seduce her. <laughs> I'm a very good seducer. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but there was one thing. It was freezing cold, and we had a scene on a swing. You know the scene mm-hmm, on yes. the swing? And it, they put a little heater down here. And I sat there, and it was freezing cold, and I had these lines to say, and I kept putting my hand down here, because there was a little heater. And all the reviews afterwards says, where was his hand while this was going? <laughs> it, it was, that movie was condemned by the Catholic Church. Uh, Cardinal Spellman said... Any Catholic going to see that is in danger of being excommunicated. (laughs) And the first three months, we were sold out. (laughs) It's still a wonderful movie. But that's Tennessee at its best. At its best. It is. Now, Elaine, you recently uh, participated in an evening that was actually called The Lighter Side of Tennessee Williams. And That's I think funny it's, in itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a short evening, I take it. No. Um, but I was interested. They to re- immediately thought of me. <laughs> I was interested to. Re- I was interested to read that it was actually a uh, an early version or a variation on um, Glass Menagerie, you might say. I don't know. The pretty I know. track. I know it was a. Ver- it was one of the scripts that he. I mean, part part of the script that Tennessee was working on, mm-hmm. and he finished it that way, thinking, wanting to see how he reacted to it coming out more positively at the mm-hmm. end. So, um, I had a feeling after doing it. Um, first of all, I have to tell you this before the time goes away and I don't get a chance to. I was in Philadelphia in 19, I don't know, 40-something, and uh, I was doing my first Broadway show after, you know, being in dramatic school, serious dramatic school for two or three years, and I end up in Angel in the Wings, which was a review. And I was playing at one theater, and at another theater, Marlon was in Streetcar, and it was their first out of town, you know, tryout. And I had to see, we had different matinees, so it was terrific. And we were good friends for a few minutes. And, 
So, so I, he, he had seen Angel in the Wings, and uh, he thought that was a hoot, you know. Um, and I, w- I went to see Streetcar, tried to get in to see Streetcar, and they were sold out. And I was so frustrated because they were going back to New York. I had to get into that theater. And so I went up to this guy that was up by the box office, and he talked to the box office people. So I said, that's the company manager. I'm going to get in this theater. So I went up to this man, and he said, uh, uh, I said, I've got to. I told him my story. And he went up to the box office, took me by the hand, and I felt something very funny was going on. I didn't know. You know, when you get that feeling, something's in the air. I, you, it, this isn't, it's, it's odd enough as it is, but something's going on here. And I went up and he said, this is, uh, what's your name? And I said, Elaine Stritch. And he said, Miss Stritch has got to have a chair in the aisle because she's the new understudy for Stella. <laughs> so I saw I saw a streetcar in Philadelphia on a chair in the aisle <laughs> as the up and coming understudy <laughs> oh for Stella and of course the man was Tennessee Williams and we became friends from that and I just loved impressing him so much what the hell was I doing in that lobby that was making him pay so much attention to me so um, I finally uh, asked him years later and he said the sweetest thing Mm-mm-mm. he said I knew you were an actress, and I love actresses. Mm-hmm. And it was so simple and so sweet and so such a lovely experience. Uh, you know, I, 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 it never occurred to me to ask him if the understudy was taken or not. <laughs> <laughs> he just ca- he captured me. I, I stopped thinking about myself for a few minutes. Can I about Tennessee? Yeah. Um, well, Eli, of course, was working with Tennessee really this heyday. Um, you created uh, original roles in two of his plays, the uh, the Rose Tattoo, and uh, which was a huge success, and I think was a very unexpected success from Tennessee Williams, who until that point had been known for the darker dramas. And then uh, I'm also curious to hear if you have any stories about Camino Real, which was something less of a success. So, um, what was it like to work with Tennessee when he was at the height of his? Oh, I loved I loved working with him. Um, but he, what what happened was Tennessee got a review of uh, this play, Camino Real, mm-hmm. which is the most exciting play I've ever been in. Mm-hmm. Really? But the critic, one critic, Walter Kerr, said Tennessee Williams is our greatest playwright, and this is his worst play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So Tennessee wrote a letter to the producer, Cheryl Crawford, and he said, whenever I'm in trouble and I need money and I need help, and there you are, you're great. But I wrote this letter to Walter Kerr, and I'd like you to hear it. And this is the letter. Dear Mr. Kerr, I understand your position as a critic, and you have a perfect right for your opinions in my play. But I want you to know that silence is only golden when you have nothing to say. (laughs) And I have a great deal to say, cordially, Tennessee Williams. (laughs) 
which I thought was wonderful. That is wonderful. And the rose tattoo was actually a you know a, a huge hit. Was that? Uh, did people react with surprise when he wrote it? Was essentially a warm romantic comedy after all this, you know, this dark southern stuff. Oh, he. It's an Italian fable, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I have to tell about Maureen, though. Maureen. Maureen Stapleton was mm-hmm. a star, and I used to come on, kicked in the groin by a, a truck. I was driving a truck, and this man kicked me in, in the groin, and I came in crying, and, she, and as I came in, this was an hour after the, mo- the play had been on, Maureen turned up stage and yawned. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to Maureen at the intermission, how could you do that? I come on to play my scene, to do this thing. She said, just a minute. And when Maureen gets irritated and angry, she does. She said, I was fighting with the young sailor who's trying to seduce my daughter. I was attacking the priest who was taking their, their chances and all the people on the stage in, in were irritating me, and so I got irritated. And you come on, and you started your little fiddle, and, <laughs> and I turned up stage and yawned, so fuck you. <laughs> I, I didn't say it. No, 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 no. Ma- Maureen is... I have to tell that. Can I tell that one story about Maureen? By all means. We did the play all across America for a year and a half. We closed in San Francisco. And Maureen said to her husband, Max, all right, what are we going to do now? He said, we're going to fly home. She said, I do not fly. He said, how are we going to get home? It takes a week to get there on the train. Flying will get you there in eight hours, 12 hours. She said, I'll go on one condition. I want to speak to the captain. He said, the captain of what? She said, the, the plane, the plane. <laughs> and she got the captain on who said, I, I've been flying for 20 years. My co-pilot is flying too, so there's no, no problem. She said, well, I'll tell you what I want. I want a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, so the man said, oh... Did you get one? No, he didn't get one. He said, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fine, you get on. So she said, I'll sit... Uh, um, Eli will sit next to me by the window, and I'll sit on the aisle. So I said, all right. So we flew. We got on the plane. And every time the stewardesses came down the aisle, Maureen would grab another drink. <laughs> and she had six in a row. <laughs> and I had two. And after an hour in the air... I said, Maureen, I have to go to the bathroom. She, no answer. I said, please, Maureen, I'm not, I'm not joking. I really have to go to the bathroom. So she said, okay, let's go. <laughs> so, so I went to the bathroom. She stood outside. And when I came out, she said, no more privileges. <laughs> so that's my experiences with me. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Well, I think we're going to open it up to a more broad discussion now. Of, I'm not discouraging any funnier anecdotes, but um, maybe we'll do a broader discussion of, uh, you know, how actors approach Tennessee Williams, both on stage and, uh, and in film. And to introduce it, I think we'll take a look at a little bit from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, because I think this is a great example of um, how, how much he gave actors to work with, I mean, and how sometimes he really brought out the absolute best in them. Elizabeth Taylor in this movie is, uh, I think, gives one of her very best performances. And uh, I think she also gave one of her best performances in another Tennessee Williams movie, Suddenly Last Summer. Um, maybe one of her worst in Boom, but that's another story. Um, but we'll take a look at this, and maybe it'll open up some ideas about you know, what it is like to speak those words. Your bath water cool? No. I know something make you feel cool and fresh. Alcohol rub. Cologne. No thanks. We'd smell alike, like a couple of cats in the heat. I am not going down there, Maggie. Not for you and not for Big Daddy. At least you can give him this present. I remember to buy for you for his birthday. At least you can write a few words on this card. You write something, Maggie. It's got to be your handwriting. It's your present. It's got to be your handwriting. I didn't get him a present. Well, what's the difference? If there's no difference, you write the card. And have him know you didn't remember his birthday? I didn't remember. Well, you don't have to prove it to him. Just just write love brick, for heaven's sake. No. You've got to. I don't have to do anything I don't want to. Now, you keep forgetting the conditions on which I agreed to stay on living with you. I'm not living with you. We occupy the same cage, that's all. It's the first time you've raised your voice in a long time. Crack in the stone wall. I think that's a fine sign. Mighty fine. What would you do that for, Maggie? a little privacy for a while. Don't make a fool of yourself, Maggie. I don't mind making a fool of myself over you. Well, I mind. I feel embarrassed for you. Feel embarrassed? But I can't live on this way. Now, you agreed to accept that condition. I know I did, but I can't. I can't. Let go, Maggie. Go, Maggie. Well, that also reminds me that Tennessee Williams 
created more strong female characters uh, than maybe any other American playwright. In fact, that may have been, if not his signal achievement, it was one of them, which is bringing the experience of women, um, you know, not just sexually and spiritually and emotionally, but, you know, all together to the forefront of theater. He did that in a way that no other American playwright had done at the time, and I'm not sure anyone's really done it since as consistently well. So with four actresses here, I'd like to hear um, their impressions of what, what are the wonderful tools he gives actresses. You started, Lynn. Uh, uh, I was... I'll tell you what I experienced in the audience tonight um, when they showed Streetcar and also in Ellen's um, monologue in Teardrop. As tennis, I, I can't discuss Tennessee's writing. I can't discuss about lyricism or lots of big-time words that I've heard people mention, which is probably right on the money, but I, I can't do... What I think Tennessee Williams does to actresses is they're finally home. They're finally home as human. His writing comes second nature to a fine actor. And the fine actor who's looking for a good play all over the place, and if they're good, they land in a Tennessee Williams play, and their problems are over. <laughs> Your problems are over. I even think you could get away with a bad director in the Tennessee. <laughs> I do. Because he'd be with you all the time. Because what he does for an audience is when I'm watching Tennessee Williams, I can relax so I can cry. I can relax watching Tennessee Williams because. I'm not worried about the dialogue isn't confused. Uh, it, it's there. It's just fine. So now I can get involved with the emotion because I'm unaware of the writing even. Mm-hmm. I'm just aware of watching human beings go through unbelievable situations. And I'm not disturbed by the writing. I'm relaxed by it. And my emotions can express themselves within themselves. That's what I think. And certainly, personally, I haven't done enough Tennessee Williams. Oh, it just breaks my heart I haven't done. But I was asked to do uh, small craft warnings in London. And I had the experience of him being there all through the run. And my God, I mean, it was, it was just terrific. It was absolutely terrific. I remember the, the humor of, of uh, Tennessee is... Oh, just as dangerous as humor is, it, he's, he, 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 it becomes him to be funny. I don't know where the funny comes from because I don't dare go there, but it sure comes to him, and it comes out to you. I, I said to him, him one night, why don't you go home and write a play for me? <laughs> <laughs> and I had met him. I had met my first and only husband in a in, in small craft warnings in, in that play. And this was a long time later, and I said, why don't you go home and write a play for me? He said, Lane, I got you a husband. Now that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his humor was just dynamite. Just yeah. dynamite. <laughs> 
He said to a guy in, in, in Orso's, in, I mean in Allen's in London one night, a real handsome kid came over, you know, to take the order. And uh, he didn't have a pet, but I mean, he took the order and he said, can I help you? He looked at Tennessee and Tennessee said, are you actor or a waiter? <laughs> he asked him first before he'd give him his, his order for, for the, um, uh, he was, his, his talk was like his dialogue in, in his writing too. If you had a relaxed conversation with Tennessee, which was possible. He was one of the most adorable men I've ever met in my life. Absolutely. And uh, uh, that's all I can say is just that that um, it's a I said I said it in the first line. I was home when I was doing anything, you know. So that's that's all I have to say. Thank you. Ellen, I know you do a lot of teaching still um, and you've taught for many years. I'm curious if Williams still plays a very significant role in the, I guess it's not terribly academic, but the curriculum for actors. Funny you should ask that. Just the other day, Tuesday, two actors did that scene that we just looked at. Um, And of course, Paul was our, our great love and mentor and guide for so many years. So to see him do that scene with Elizabeth Taylor is just so moving I can hardly speak. And the scene that we saw with Eli and Carol Baker, who's also a member of the Actors Studio, as is Eli, was the scene that I did for Lee Strasberg. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting here looking at <laughs> two scenes that, that are alive on the stage of the Actors Studio for me. We, we still do Tennessee all the time. Mm-hmm. His work is just, there's probably a play of Tennessee's being done right now, this moment, in a hundred places in the world. He's just one of the most alive um, living playwrights, even though he's not with us anymore. And it, whenever I read anything about him, the thing that impresses me most because you hear about, you know, there's a lot about his sex life and his hedonism and his drinking and his drugs and a lot of material like that. But actually, the thing that sticks out the most to me is how hard he worked. Mm-hmm. He wrote every single day and he rewrote and rewrote and rewrote these stories and poems and short stories and a novel and a the plays and the screenplays. And it was like he had a a diamond inside of him, driving him. And I think that's why he became the greatest American playwright of his time. Because he really, he not only had the talent, but he worked hard. And I just fear that that is being lost an awful lot. You know, with things like reality shows and dumb stuff that we see on television mm-hmm. and fast material and fast rehearsals and, and you know, fast food in, <laughs> uh, in our culture. And it just is too bad mm-hmm. because finally the fact of the matter is, is that if you have the talent, then you are as great as you are willing to work hard. Oh, 
Uh, Jody, I'm curious, speaking to that point, sort of, um, did you ever feel a little trepidatious, you know, you who were making this movie about how do we make Tennessee Williams speak to a new generation? I mean, how do you, you were taking a piece that was in a time capsule in a way for a long time and trying to make it live again. And uh, did you do a lot of thought about that or did it just come naturally? Well, I, I think the two lead characters being young, in their young 20s, mm -hmm. I thought was um, a key because a lot of his work, that's not the case. And I thought, well, here's a fresh, um, these two lead characters are, are very fresh in the Williams canon. But I also, in that same hand, thought that their desires and their needs to be understood, to find something true in a very, um, a world full of deceit and, and delusion, I, I think that that is timeless. Um, and I think that the women he wrote about a lot were too sensitive, too beautiful, too sensual, too witty, too adventurous in spirit. And, and he made us, when we first meet them, they seem a bit harsh and abrasive. And like, how could we ever get to know Blanche Dubois? But by the end, you're feeling for them. And I think William said once that he never wrote about a vice that he didn't observe in himself. And I think that's the key because he didn't judge his characters. Mm -hmm. he, he was humanistic about them, and I think that that just carries us through the time. And again, as I said, he, he really was more of a poet than his structures weren't ever exactly the way they are today in a very narrative, linear way. Um, I, this is one quote that I read by Arthur Miller recently that said he legitimized sheer sensibility as a driving force to dramatic structure. And I just thought, that's it. Because it's the sensibility that he wrote about that I think makes us relate to him. And as actors, you know, I, I love actors and I, I love working with them. And you can feel his love for them in the work. It's just, it's just there. You know, and when you were filming the movie, Bryce, did you get this surging feeling of the, the love for an actor that comes through in all his writing? Well, yeah, because, um, because of the characters, because of the, the extraordinary depth and, and care with which the characters are written, that it's not, it's not just about, um, I don't know, exciting set pieces or sequences or, or, or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really about human beings. And, um, and that's, you know, what our, what our job is, is to just, is to just to be alive within whatever the writer has created. Um, so yeah, it takes an enormous amount of, of love for human beings to write in the way that, that he wrote. Absolutely. And do you find that actors of your age and generation are as enamored of Williams as, you know, I think all of, all of us are. Yes. Really. Yeah, absolutely. It's no still question. an important part of it. Yeah, I mean, something that was actually, um, the, the irony of me getting the chance to do this is that when I went to school, we would have scenes assigned to us. And it was, and, and, I, and I promise this is true, it was always, you know, who, who was going to get the Williams scene. That was the most <laughs> exciting scene. And I never got to be in a Williams scene throughout school. And so when this opportunity came around, I was like, finally, you know, it was so exciting. Um, so, oh, totally, totally. And we had a lot of young actors when, we, when we, the word got out that we were doing this that sought us out and wanted to be in 
in it. And, and I was surprised because I, I didn't know if that would happen. I hoped it would. But they re you know, really were hungry for it. A lot of well-known actors who have worked in a lot, of, made a lot of films, they wanted to do Williams. Well, and as you see, I mean, the most exciting show in town right now, pretty much, well, it's in Brooklyn, um, is possibly The Streetcar Named Desire with Kate Blanchett, which has really ignited a, a, you know, a renewed interest in Williams. And people who, I went to one of the early performances, and it, it certainly didn't look like your uh, average Broadway crowd. So it was, it was encouraging to see huge amounts of young people who were, you know, perhaps admittedly there to see uh, Kate Blanchett do just about anything, but I think uh, the rapturous response, and actually the rapt response, it was a really attentive audience, sort of attests to the fact that he remains, um, and always will remain, let's face it, a, all great playwrights do, a really powerful cultural force. Um, I think we're probably... No, I have one more. Yes, af <laughs> after this story... Um, and actually, any other great anecdotes were welcome. Go no, for it. Tennessee invited Anne and me to see the film version of Glass Menagerie. Mm. And we went. He and his young friend, we went up in the elevator. We got there. And we're on the 18th floor. And a woman comes over with a big pad and she says to Tennessee, and where are you from? And he said, meaning, what, what program do you work for? Mm -hmm. What theater? What, what newspaper? He, she said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> oh, she said, smart. Well, you're not getting in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tennessee turned and went toward the elevator. And his friend said, Ten, it's your movie. Where are you going? <laughs> And the woman said, she ran over to him and said, are you, are you Tennessee Williams? He said, yes. She said, why didn't you tell me who you were? He said, you didn't ask me who I was. You asked me where I'm from. <laughs> That's very funny. And Elaine, I think, did you have something you wanted to read? I'm looking to make sure I've got... This is... I hesitate to to, um, to uh, read this, um, and I certainly won't read all of it. But this uh, uh, this is something that um, Jim Garrison, who is writing a book about um, Tennessee, sent me a little excerpt. It includes something uh, that he said about me. But I'm just going to, uh, and I really mean this. I, I I get a little nervous about that because it's you know it's. It isn't all about me. I learned that a long time ago. <laughs> but this is this is this deals. This is Tennessee Williams writing, talking to a friend about his what Ellen brought up about the drugs and the alcohol, and, um, and how hard he worked. I love that the fact that you brought that out. But this is a little bit to do with the problem that I shared with Tennessee and his thoughts about it. And so it's, it's forcing me to read this. And I think it's, it's of interest to a lot of people here. Um, it's called Tennessee on Elaine Stritch, which I never, never even thought ever was in existence, a line like that. But I got this in the mail, and I nearly fainted. The reason that I was so extraordinarily hit by it was because uh, to know that somebody could 
figure you out that quickly. Unbelievable, this guy. I've lived the better part of my life relying on a deep-seated instinct that always knew to place me in the vicinity of people who would help me pull me through the rocky terrain that is my natural habitat. Um, Truman Capote talked about God gives us a gift, and along with the gift comes a whip. But I've never felt that way. I always felt that along with whatever gifts I've been given, God also threw in a generous helping of friendship and humor, both of which are essential for getting along. Every once in a while, I meet someone who seems to me the perfect person to understand my particular melodramatic scenarios, someone who will listen to my fantasies and not take me too terribly seriously because they've seen deeper wells than I've ever dreamed of digging. An example that comes to mind is Elaine, an actress who did Leone in Smallcraft Warnings years ago in London and would be ideal I'm forced to read this because it's such a compliment, and would be, <laughs> and would be, and would be ideal as the princess in *Sweet Bird of Youth*. If anyone would finally do the play as it was intended. <laughs> she strikes me as intrinsically honest and absolutely unafraid of her talent. I've never heard anything said that way in, in my life. Uh, um, Never. Um, She seems to just ride its back to whatever destination it has planned for her, and I imagine she's scared to death a lot of the times, but she's a trooper and she laughs a lot while she's soiling her panties. (laughs) (laughs) And thinking of an escape. Um, I'm going to, this is the alcoholic part. I heard she found an escape for which I envy her. I can spend the rest of my life never craving another cigarette, but I absolutely cannot lick this addiction to alcohol. I wake up mornings thinking of that first drink, and I play these games with myself, as in, shall I have a claret this morning? That would be unique, or I haven't had a Brandy Alexander in years. Today is the day to break the trend. I seem to have no control whatsoever over this stream of alcohol. I wake up in a panic, wondering if I will ever have another drink again. I once phoned up a liquor store in Key West and ordered an ungodly amount of booze, and they asked me if I was stocking a fallout shelter. (laughs) I was just so afraid that there would be a shortage of gin and scotch. I don't know if it's true that the creative soul is driven to drink more so than others. I somehow doubt it. It sounds like the excuse of a drunk to say, I am afflicted with the artist's disease, when in fact all booze does is keep you from being anything but over-emotional and someone who licked it and who still bears the title of artist. I would imagine that Elaine is an even better associate, a bit better even a better actress now than she was in that Amber Hayes that I always associate with the best benders. Um, uh, This is more about me, but his last line that he says to his friend, Jim Harrison, um, give Elaine my best and ask her to offer you the advice that will keep you out of this boring swamp I've led you into. So that was his terrible, terrible battle with alcohol, and his great simpatico for someone else who has the same problem. So I thought it was of interest to read it. Thank you. 
Well, I, I look forward to a volume called The Collected Letters About Elaine Stritch, because that <laughs> is a really wonderful letter. Um, but as you said, I think it also uh, sums up his, how, how compassionate he was, uh, how funny he was, and really, you know, how talented he was. I mean, in a letter like that, to, I mean, that's a letter that really, you read it beautifully. Any one of the actresses here could have done a wonderful job with it, and Mr. Wallach, too. Um, so I think, uh, thank you for ending it on that. Now it's great. So with that, I'll say good night. Thank you, Tana. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.